Welcome to the Dietitian's Dish Podcast. We are Gina and Nicole, two dietitian mamas and good friends living in Ohio and Michigan. This is a podcast dedicated to making whole family wellness more fun and less stressful. Whether you're listening in the car or slumped on the couch with a glass of wine, welcome. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Dietitian's Dish Podcast. I'm Gina. And I'm Nicole. And today we are dishing about kids and adults in the kitchen with celiac disease or gluten-free diets. But first, as always, let's do some catching up. Uh, Nicole, I just saw on Instagram your videos of Shay playing t-ball and I can't wait to hear about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I I wish there was more to report. Um, she is not. I, I, I don't think we're headed to uh, the uh, ladies softball championships anytime soon. It's day one. It's day one. True. True. She was not even interested in the end. She was like, I want to go play on the playground. I'm like, well... <laughs> but um, <clears throat> her bestie from school uh, is it on her team and her dad is the assistant coach. Um, okay. So it was super organized. I thought the parents did a great job. Um, yeah. I mean, it's they're adorable. That's all that yeah. matters. Um, it was super cute. Watching yeah. them run the bases. I love that. Yeah. She has like no pep in her step. Like there's there's one speed and it's just like <laughs> cute little girl dainty run. I mean, there's no, I'm like, come on, That's Shay, awesome. go faster. And I get like stink eyes. Like, who do you think you are? This uh, is fast, mom. This is, I'm cute. Uh, so yeah. Um, other I than that, yeah, she's, today was a busy day because she had tennis um, and that had to be cut short. That 30 minute lesson, she only could make half of cause she had to get to T-ball. So, um, oh I know it's, it's beginning, but I, I just can't wait to be able to put Paige into things like that. Just, she's just not ready at this point. She will clam up. And I mean, I've tried, I've tried group activities and she's just not, um, socially and emotionally ready for it. So, and that's it's okay. Fine. Yeah. There's so many years and, um, yes. yeah, you know, I, <clears throat> I kind of went back and forth on it. T-ball is like literally six weeks. So it's six intense weeks. And then it's kind of like done for the year. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so we're giving it a whirl. But you have a lot more going on in your life, which you already shared a little bit with me today. But uh, please update our listeners on your uh, breast lump scare. Yes. So I went. I felt a lump in my breast. And I am, I don't, I'm not considered high risk. I don't have any first degree, like I said last time, first degree relatives who've had breast cancer. And honestly, even my my grandma and her sister on my paternal side, um, they were over age 60. Well, my grandma was over age 60. Her her sister was actually, I believe, in her 40s when she got breast cancer. So there is that, you know, slightly higher risk because it is in my family. Um, and I've also got very dense breasts, with, which if you look at the research, research does show that it's people or women with des- more dense breasts and probably even ma- males um, who actually, I think, automatically have more dense breasts. Dense meaning more muscle and less fat is how I understand it, tend to have a higher risk of breast cancer. And I think it has to do with the fact that a lot of times mammograms do not catch the cancer easier because I guess dense tissue and breast shows up white, just like um, cancer shows up on a mammogram. Oh, that makes sense. So I don't know if there's actually a link that that women who have more dense breasts automatically have a higher risk because of the dense breasts or if it has to do with the mammogram, how it looks similar or a little bit of both. I'm not really sure. 
regardless, I have dense breasts. There's literally no fat in my breasts at all. It's like the one place that I wish I had fat. <laughs> um, I have nothing. And um, so long story short, they, uh, I felt a lump in my breast and it was like a little pea-sized lump. And I had my OB uh, check it out and she suggested I go get a mammogram. I did. And it looked fine. It was fine. The lady said pretty much that I'm probably going to find things like that in my breasts at times because I do have very dense breasts. She didn't really explain it very well, but I didn't ask that many questions. I guess I was just so relieved. I couldn't even think straight. Um, and she also said my breasts are very glandular, which is funny. I text my sister-in-law who is a breast surgeon. She does, she's an oncologist and she does breast cancer surgery. And I told her my breasts are very granular. <laughs> and she's like, you mean glandular? LOL. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> Same difference. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Gosh. Um, so I think that might explain why I made so much milk, possibly, since I, 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 I envisioned that as meaning I have a lot of, like, milk ducts. But I really don't know. I, that's how, what I envisioned. I really feel like, I mean, when I was making milk, you could see, like, the veins and I always felt, and I think that's very common, but I always felt, I could feel my ducts in there, like filled with milk. It was it's so weird, but anyway, and amazing. So my, my, my breasts are dense and glandular. I do not have breast cancer. It is not a lump of concern. I might have another one uh, in the future. And basically they said that I have no need to worry about it. But of course, if I feel another pea-sized mass as my OB called it I probably will go get a mammogram but it made me feel a lot better but having a mammogram I will say because you probably never had one because I think that they No, I'm very curious about the process it sounds okay. terrible no 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 it really wasn't bad so I've had these terrible visions in my mind that they're that it's just this really really uncomfortable machine where they squeeze your breast and it hurts yeah, like really a bad vice well, it is. That's a good way to describe it. And you basically had to hug and make love to this machine and not breathe. She, it was the weirdest thing. I had to like hug on this machine with my breasts, you know, trapped in between these two giant pieces of plastic. And the lady was like, now don't breathe. And I was like, wait, what? And she didn't warn me that she was going to say that. And so I hadn't taken a deep breath. So I was like, like I couldn't breathe. And I'm like, wait, I don't know. I don't, I wish you would have warned me of like how it was going to go. So that was a little bit awkward. I had to do that about five times. And yes, your breast is pretty much just squeezed to about a half a half an inch in thickness, which for me is, is not that crazy. I mean, envision, I have nothing basically. I barely even fit in a cup. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it was very awkward and strange, but I'm glad I, I've experienced it. So when I'm 40 and I have to do one again, I know what I'm getting myself into. You still owe me the picture of your giant boobs when you were breastfeeding. Oh my gosh, I do. I have to find. I have to find that picture. I gotta. See did it. I ever send you the one in Vegas? No, I don't think so. Me? I think I well, did. I yeah, think I sent you the one, and that wasn't. Were you that wearing was just, white? No, I was wearing a pink bikini. Mm. I was at that point. I was weaning off um, of breast milk uh, with Paige. And so my breasts were huge. I didn't even, I don't think I even brought a, I think I brought like the hand pump with me to Vegas because I said to myself, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. So I brought the hand pump just to relieve like pressure and pain. Mm -hmm. um, but my breasts were huge. And of course I fit right in. We were in Vegas, but I will, I had to find the, the picture I sent to my friends right after I had Paige. I had no idea that my breasts were going to get this big. Like I, I really, I had no, no, none of my friends had ever, I was one of my first friends to have babies and breastfeed. 
So I really didn't know what to expect. And they were so big, I was like scared for my life. Like I could <laughs> I could barely I breathe. Suffocate me in my sleep. <laughs> or my baby. One or the other. <laughs> And we're all here to tell about it. Oh oh. It was scary. Like Nick was like, what do I do with these? I'm like, you don't touch them. That's what you do. So he didn't for about a year. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. All I remember about breastfeeding was I had a dud and a stud. Um, oh yeah. Uh-huh. My left was my top producer. So, but I know That's we, how I was with Cameron. We have another boob talk too. coming up. Yeah. Well, oh, I think yeah, it's because sure. I prefer to hold a baby's head in my left arm, like the nook of my left arm. Um, oh. So I think I favor that side. And it was just easier for me to breastfeed on that side. Well, that makes sense. You use it more. So it I'm making it up. Yeah. I have no idea. I did also. <laughs> it's, it, it makes sense. It sounds right, Nicole. Um, the person who, the radiologist who came in and looked at my mammogram results, I asked her about getting a breast, breast implant. I said, listen. I'm considering possibly in the future getting some small implants so I actually have some breasts. Would that be a bad idea for someone like me who has it in my family? Would that impede, um, you know, the results? Or you would it make it more difficult for someone like you, a radiologist, to, to see cancer on a, yeah. on, a, on a scan or ultrasound, bottom line? And she pretty much said, no, absolutely not. And just make sure to talk, about, talk to the surgeon who does the surgery about my risk and they'll put certain implants in over other ones. I don't know. I had to get more details. I'm not planning on doing it anytime soon, but when I do, I definitely know what to ask. So yeah, if I, if, if I even do it. I don't hey, know, if you have a radiologist sitting in front of you, you might as well ask your exactly burning yes. questions. I thought it was a good one. Definitely. Good. Oh so my. other than that, yeah, so that's good. Other than that, really nothing. Um, I will tell you, I never experienced the terrible twos with Paige. Like when everyone said, and, and I say that because Paige was always difficult. Like she was difficult from, I would say seven months on. So her whole first year, she was so difficult and things didn't really change at two or three or four. It was always difficult. Cameron, on the other hand, was pretty easy from birth till I would say about now. <laughs> and all of a sudden, and he's just turned two in February. I, I think that he gives a new meaning to the term terrible twos. Um, so it's starting to make sense to me. Uh, so yeah, he's become independent, wants to do everything himself. And I'm, I know it's a sign of growth and and maturation. I totally understand it, but whoa, is it testing my patience? Does it make it any less enjoyable? He has to more enjoyable. Yes. Right. He, when you, when he, when we put him in the car, we're already rushing typically when we get in the car and he has to, you know, buckle himself, which takes an extra five minutes because he can never figure it out, but I'm trying to be patient. So everything it's, you know. He needs to do it himself, and I love it, but it's also testing my patience, um, and that's just one example. I mean, there are so many other things about him right now that are just driving me insane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're going to hold off on body training for a little bit. You How's know, it going with Piper? Favorite, favorite kids. Um, she, okay. right before I came upstairs to podcast, she peed on the floor. Um, <laughs> so, yep, just depends. Um, pee, we're getting really close. Uh, number two, we're, yeah. That's going to be a while. So yeah, and um, that's, that's to okay. Be expected. Yeah, yeah, we're we're grooving along. So, well, should we hop in today? Yeah, let's do it. Um, so I think this um topic of gluten free in the kitchen kind of came from, well, I guess both of us. You have a mm-hmm. lot of experience with working with people who need to eliminate gluten. And mm-hmm. I, on the other hand, do not. And I was approached mm-hmm. uh, about five years ago to do my second cookbook on, um, and they approached me wanting a 
gluten-free specific cookbook uh, that utilized almond flour. And my knee-jerk reaction was, no, why would I do that? That sounds incredibly difficult. And I know nothing about baking gluten-free or cooking with you know gluten-free. And then I kind of did some soul searching and I was like, okay, Nicole, that's a really bad reason to say no to a cookbook. And look at this, like, where's the positive here? And the positive is learn something new. And so, you know, dietitians learn about this stuff, but I think what we fail to realize is really um, how difficult it can be to go gluten-free. And it's it's interesting. I was sitting downstairs with um, Mark just now, and he said that he had just heard on the radio um, an article about uh, restaurants. And I'm, I'm probably going ahead of myself just a little bit, but I'll rewind. Um, and it's from Science Daily. And it mm-hmm. says um, it, it was done by Columbia University's Mailman Mailman School of Public Health. It says, just the summary, even tiny amounts of gluten in foods are troublesome for people with celiac disease and restaurants may be the hardest place to avoid the proteins, finds a new study. More than half of gluten-free pizza and pasta dishes in restaurants tested positive for the presence of gluten and about one third of supposedly gluten-free foods had detectable gluten. So I think that is just like in some that just goes to show how difficult this can be. And I think you and I are very fortunate in that we don't deal with this on a daily basis. Um, but hopefully today's podcast well, can ourselves, really, yeah. Our, yeah, ourselves um, mm-hmm. in our immediate families. But, you know, this is uh, very common. So just to kind of jump in what it is, um, and it is an autoimmune condition that affects the small intestine where gluten is ingested. And as I just said, gluten is the protein found in wheat, uh, barley, and rye. And so what kind of makes celiac disease uh, a little challenging is that it can really be diagnosed at any age and symptoms really present in very different ways, sometimes coming on very slowly and other times quite rapidly. And so when individuals with celiac disease or gluten intolerance ingest gluten, the villi and microvilli, which assume like, I always think of it as like seaweed, almost like these little Mm -hmm. finger like... um, they're they're the absorption power of the gut. And so you have all these villi and microvilli, like almost do jazz hands, like your little wiggling fingers. I mean, think of that as your, the inside of your small intestine. And as gluten, if you're gluten intolerant or have celiac disease, the, the gluten basically attacks that and kills it off. So you lose your body's natural ability to absorb nutrients. So it's a very, very damaging to the gut. Um, And so there's, it inhibits protein, carbohydrate, fat, vitamin, mineral, all of those types of um, nutrient digestion. So a lot of symptoms can occur. Anemia for one, that's a huge one. Fatigue, irritability, and then all of your GI stuff. So diarrhea, bloating, stomach aches, um, decreased appetite, chronic constipation. In children, they'll often see poor growth or difficulty gaining weight. Um, Later in life in women, even infertility changes in tooth enamel, skin rash, changes in your bone integrity. So lots of different stuff going on, which can make it almost really challenging to diagnose. And then on the other side, some people have no symptoms at all. And so this is, and it's, this is a growing um, group of people with celiac disease. And so um, similar to many autoimmune conditions, you know, comes to mind, type one diabetes, there is no cure. And so it's controlled just through a diet void of gluten. And that sounds super Mm -hmm. simple, but as we kind of progress through this talk, you'll see that it's not. And so how prevalent is celiac disease? And um, one of the 
resources in our show notes, um, which I think came from gluten.org. Um, it said one in thirty-three, one one in one hundred and thirty-three have celiac disease. However, as many as ninety-seven percent of those with celiac disease go undiagnosed. So I think we're we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg here when it comes to agree. celiac disease. Um, and Gina, just a question for you, mm-hmm. which hopefully I'm not putting you on the spot too much. Mm-hmm. Do you think of when you think of celiac disease and gluten? Do you think that there's a spectrum of intolerance? Yes, absolutely. I do believe in what they what they call gluten intolerance. I think that there's people who um so when you're when you're diagnosed with celiac disease, do I think there's a spectrum of intolerance in that case? No. I think if you're diagnosed with with celiac disease, you must avoid it at all costs. I think some people have different reactions to it. So I have friends who have celiac disease who the it, right when they consume gluten, they know it right away because they might vomit or get a headache or have some type of a symptom that is very noticeable. Mm-hmm. Whereas I have other friends or students that I work with who have celiac disease who might consume gluten, but they don't really have any outwardly present um, reactions to it, which is almost, in my opinion, a bad thing because they might not know that they're continually, continually getting glutened um, but every, and everything's happening internal and they don't see it. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's almost a better thing to actually, for your body to tell you right away that you're consuming gluten so you're more aware of where you might be getting it. Uh, so I think it, maybe that maybe there is, you know, obviously certain people, might their body might react a little bit more, but I think, you know, than others. But I think no matter what, if you have been diagnosed with celiac disease, it is imperative that you completely avoid gluten. And to put that into perspective, I totally understand and agree with that article that a lot of restaurants that say that they have gluten-free foods, it actually contains a little bit of gluten. So the FDA says that you can only tag foods as, or you know, consider foods gluten-free, quote unquote, or, or, cons- or tag or put that type of a, a label on a food product, gluten-free, if it is 20 parts per million or less gluten. 20 parts per million, to put that into perspective, is one five hundredth of a teaspoon, which is, I mean, a minuscule amount. So I can totally understand how a lot of restaurants um, might call their, you know, pizza the, you know, gluten-free option, but most of these restaurants have never actually tested their mm-hmm. pizza. And if you're getting a pizza that's called gluten-free, it's typically going to be at a pizza restaurant that's covered with gluten. So I, I completely understand that, but I'm totally going off of the, um, of your question right now. So I apologize. I'm no, going off on a tangent. No, so I yes, think, I, that's good. And I think cross-contamination yeah. is really, and we'll talk about that later too, but that's yeah. a huge part of it. It's very difficult to eliminate that altogether. Um, yeah, especially in, unless it's a restaurant that is void of gluten. I mean, on the entire menu. Um, yeah. And, and, and usually I would say that, that those types of items at restaurants are supposed to be for not someone who has celiac disease, but someone who is gluten intolerant, someone who has been, not been diagnosed with celiac disease, but has shown to have issues when consuming gluten. But they, they don't have to worry so much about that cross contact and those minuscule amounts. Um, they can still maybe, you know, eat a pizza that was made on a the same oven with regular wheat gluten pizza. It's it's those are the type of customers that I think those gluten free items at restaurants should be catered to. Not someone who has celiac. Not to say that someone who has celiac should never eat out, but they should make sure that they go to a reputable place who has the correct procedures in place to make sure there's no cross contact. That's mm-hmm. the bottom line. Yeah. 
Yeah. I have one of my really good friends who I grew up, grew up playing hockey with. He was, uh, diagnosed in his probably in his late twenties, I'm just guessing. Um, and he is super sensitive. And so in preparing for this podcast, I actually reached out to him as as far as his go tos. And so I did include a bunch of those in the in the show notes. But oh nice. Yeah, I mean the treat the treatment is gluten elimination. And so um even for babies who are diagnosed in infancy breastfeeding mothers have to eat a gluten-free diet and formulas would have to be gluten-free and manufactured in a facility that does not, you know, is not, there's no wheat probably um, in the facility. Do you think that are most formulas, because I really don't know, are, do they, I would assume most formulas are automatically gluten-free. Am I wrong about that? I I've never actually you, looked into this. I believe you're correct, but I think that it would have to say on it. And so maybe yeah. one of our listeners could look on a formula container and see if it says <laughs> like processed in a facility with, like with wheat. Because um, yeah. I'm thinking like Nestle, yeah. for example, like Nestle yes. definitely creates products Abbott, that, same thing. yeah, I mean, they don't have probably a manufacturing site just for formula. Now I could be wrong. Right. It's well, probably they make bars. They make so many things, all these big companies, they make formula plus a million other things. So it's, right. yeah, it's most likely that they, they do manufacture that formula on the same, maybe not necessarily on the same equipment, but definitely in the same mm -hmm. facility. So I don't know to answer your question, but that was that was pointed out in one of the resources. So, and I thought this quote was really good to kind of bring it to to kids and families. Mm -hmm. So the quote says, "It's such an easy treatment, gluten elimination. But if you're a kid and suddenly you can't have pizza or hot dog buns or hamburger buns, it's a big deal because there's nothing a kid wants more than to be like his peers. And that's yeah. totally. I mean, how do you how do you tell a two year old, a, a three year old, a four year old? Um, right. Nope." your friends are having this or your family's having that, but this is your, you know, what you get. So yeah. this is, I mean, it's challenging. I would, I would argue it is, it's a, it's a little, it's definitely different than having something like a peanut allergy, which, you know, I think was uh, the common allergen, you know, 10 years ago where we felt bad for, you know, the kids who had the peanut allergy because they felt segregated from all their kids. They couldn't enjoy the same foods at the birthday party, but, and yes, very serious allergy, definitely something that, you know, if, you, if, you're, if your child has a peanut allergy, it is difficult when you go to a party and you have to look at every single item that is being served. But imagine, I mean, you literally, when you can't have gluten, I mean, you can't eat the cake, you can't eat the pizza. I mean, it's, I would say, you know, 99% of the things that are going to be served at a typical birthday party, this child cannot consume. So yeah, it's definitely um, isolating for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it it is. And I think part of, when a child, for example, is diagnosed with celiac disease, a lot of time and attention goes into dealing with that change um, for the for the child, for the family. And so other children in the household um, can really feel a little shafted in that process. So, you know, that was something we were talking about, at, you know, dietitians at lunch, we talk about this kind of stuff. And I was letting people at work know that we were talking about this coming up. And um, you know, one of my, one of my coworkers shared that when her daughter was diagnosed with type one diabetes, so much time and attention went into yeah. dealing with her, you know, do, new diagnosis and learning life, um, you know, redefined in that way. And, and I would say celiac is very similar in that, that, you know, it can really pull away from the family unit and, and become, you know, the need is there with that individual. And, um, but just kind of, for parents to know that that can be that this can be challenging for the whole family and and not just oh, yeah. the child um, right. that's affected directly. So um, you you mentioned a little bit about food labeling, yeah. um, and I think that was 
really good. I mean, in the U.S., I think we have a lot of opportunities, um, but do know that all foods uh, have to be clearly labeled if they contain any of the top eight food allergens. Um, and those are foods that are regulated by the FDA. And so wheat would be one of those top eight allergens. Oh. However, hmm. wheat-free does not mean gluten-free. And so there's where that probably cross-contamination thing comes in, as well as the fact that gluten is not only found in wheat, but also barley, rye. Um right. And even oats. I mean, I, you know, where I work, we don't consider oats a gluten-free grain Mm -hmm. unless they're certified gluten-free because oats are typically, you know, uh, planted and harvested around gluten-containing grains. So Mm -hmm. I think in recent years, uh, grocery stores, mainstream grocery stores at least have become very good at carrying some type of gluten-free bread, cereal, baking mixes, cookies, crackers, other products. And I think um, as good as that is, um, you know, those foods are, uh, can be at least a little bit lower in nutritional value, you know, just nutritional quality than whole foods that are naturally gluten-free. So we'll talk about that a little bit too. But um, I think there was such a big hubbub that came out with gluten-free that people assumed it was a healthier choice. Um, and that they still is, do. Yeah, yeah. It's man. Oftentimes the gluten-free baked goods, for example, it's, it's what really what sticks out in my mind contain actually more sugar and salt than mm-hmm. the non-gluten-free um, uh, counterpart. Big time. So I, I, I don't know why it's almost like when, I, I, and I don't know much about gluten-free baking. I mean, I've done it at home, but nothing intricate. Like I usually just do an easy swap of brown rice flour for wheat flour. So it's not that difficult. And mm-hmm. I've never done anything more than that. Really simple, really simple baked goods. But I'm assuming that when you take gluten out of something in order to make it taste similar to a like product, you just have to add more salt and sugar. And that's why they're doing it. It mm-hmm. makes sense to me. Um, but just know that when you're buying a gluten-free baked good, whether it's a an already baked baked good, you know, ready to eat or a boxed, baked good, um, like cake mix or brownie mix or or cookie mix, I guarantee you it's going to have more sugar and possibly more salt in it. Mm -hmm. Like I think of coconut flour, it absorbs so much liquid that, mm -hmm. I mean, it's very difficult to, to work with. I mean, you can't, it's rare that you find a recipe that only uses coconut flour because it's such a finicky flour to work with. Um, Mm -hmm. and almond flour is very similar in that way too, which is the flour that the gluten-free flour I probably have the most experience with. But yeah, I mean, often with an almond flour, you, which is literally ground almonds, um, into a very, very fine, I mean, that's super high in calories and fat. It's nuts. Um, which doesn't, it's very nutritionally, you know, sound, but it's a very high in calories. And so if you use that um, in place of all purpose flour, whole, whole wheat flour, I mean, yeah, there's a huge caloric difference there. So making right. sure that it's used in combination with, yeah, something like brown rice flour, or maybe some type of a starch, uh, like a potato starch, something along those lines, tapioca starch, mm-hmm. those are often things that help with leavening. Uh, but I will point people to my cookbook because that is a labor of love. I remember because almond flour is extremely expensive. Um, oh, yeah. I never use it. To the tune of like $20 a pound. And when you're writing a cookbook that uses <laughs> that in every single recipe and something would come out, you know, the the product was just not what I was looking for. I was like, oh, my gosh, it just killed me to throw it in the trash or yeah, I, I, the amount of waste that went into creating that cookbook was oh, a gosh, little heart wrenching. <laughs> 
but Jeez. the flavor is so rich as you can imagine with that, you know, which the fat, the mouthfeel, everything was really good. I mean, that's, it, it's a fun, fun flour to work with. So there's okay. a lot out there um, with gluten-free baking, but following a recipe, if you don't know what you're doing is very helpful. Key, I would say Key. for sure. Very <laughs> definitely. Um, and there's a tons, tons of foods out there many process that may surprise you as far as what has gluten in there. So just, just to kind of rattle some off, um, bouillon and broths. Um, and I discovered this when we were doing whole 30, that there is wheat and sugar in almost every broth that is on the market, which is crazy. Uh, caramel coloring, dry roasted nuts tend to have gluten in them. French fries, uh, they're usually flour coated to some extent gravies, tomato sauces, lunch meat, and processed meats. So you would kind of think, oh, a meat, a protein source would not have wheat, barley, or rye, but mm -hmm. that is not often the case. Marinades, non-dairy creamers, salad dressings, taco seasoning, uh, canned soup, soy sauce, different spreads and soft cheeses, seasoned rice, snack bars, things along those lines. So a lot that is not just bread or pasta or, you know, kind of the things that you would normally think of that contain gluten. Right. So I'm going to actually, so I look at recipes and ingredients all day long. I look for gluten and I'm just going to say a couple things about your list here. So I would not agree that typically things like tomato sauces contain gluten. I would say they typically do not, but they can. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, what was the other one? Broths, more companies. I think in the past, broths used to have a lot of wheat in them. More and more companies are making them without. So I would say, again, I wouldn't say they typically contain wheat, but they can. Mm -hmm. Same with, what was the other one on here that you said? Well, soy sauce definitely always has, has mm -hmm. wheat in it. Um, salad dressings too. They're really doing a better job uh, making yeah. salad dressings automatically without wheat. I also want to throw out there, be sure that you're aware that anything that is poultry or meat or most egg products are not labeled or, or regulated by the FDA. Therefore, they're regulated by the USDA, which do not have the same criteria as far as allergen labeling as the FDA. So don't think that you can look at those labels and see that it contains wheat um, and then if it doesn't say that, feel like you're okay. Again, there's mm -hmm. barley and rye that are an option um, because the USDA does not have that same, those same regulations. Now, granted, the good news is, is that the USDA do, they typically do um, kind of opt to provide that information similar to what the FDA provides for their customers, which makes it very nice and easy because they don't want to get all the calls and questions. They might as well just put the information on their label, make it easy for them. But just keep that in mind. They're not under the same um, regulatory uh, rules as the FDA. Mm -hmm. Also, I wanted to point out, and I'm getting a lot of this information from a book by one of, who, one of my favorite dietitians who also has celiac. Her name is Shelly Case. She has a book that I put a link to in our show notes. It is a, I think it costs 20 bucks. It is a must purchase. If you or someone you know was just recently diagnosed with celiac disease. But she indicates that caramel coloring also is one of those common misconceptions as far as can, something that everyone thinks contains gluten, but 99.9% .9 of the time does not. Oh. So I wanted to throw that out there as well. I know I used to think the same thing. I got this book and I was told otherwise. Oh. So yeah. Yeah. Labels, labels, labels. So I important. Know. And it's always um, changing. Yeah. No, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, 
you do this all day. I love it. I know. I do. <laughs> You're such a resource. <laughs> um, so overall, the gluten-free diet tends to be higher in fat and lower in uh, several things. Fiber, uh, carbohydrate, iron, uh, folate. So uh, and it, that just by nature of kind of the foods that are eliminated on the gluten-free diet, um, but also niacin, vitamin B12, vitamin D, calcium, phosphorus, and zinc. So lots of kind of nutritional uh, headlines there to watch out for. Um, but I think, you know, as you said before, a lot of times just if you can focus on, um, you know, just the fact that gluten-free is not necessarily um, healthier, let's say. Right. And so fat and calories and all of that come come into play big time. So just some tips yeah. that can kind of, oh, go ahead. Well, I'm just going to say gluten-free isn't necessarily carb-free too. I think a lot of oh, people yeah. think, oh, it's gluten-free. It must be low carb. It's mm-hmm. typically the opposite. So, Very much so the opposite. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I was floored some of the time when I was looking at the nutritional like kind of breakdown of all the recipes I was throwing, you know, kind of creating and um, as good as they tasted, I was like, "Woo, yeah, my waistline's probably glad I don't have to follow a gluten-free diet because I mean, they're <laughs> delicious, but yeah, they they do tend to to be pretty high. Um, so just kind of some tips here um, to make the gluten-free diet doable and nutritionally sound. So emphasize foods that are naturally gluten-free. Just make it easy on yourself. So fruit, vegetables, protein, and most dairy is naturally gluten-free. And mm-hmm. right there, those are those are the staples, should be the staples of, of our diets. Yeah, uh, gluten-free otherwise. Diet. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so that's great. Focus Or there. dairy alternatives. That's fine. Yeah. Too. Yeah. yeah. Um, be educated on cross-contamination. So uh, keeping condiments and squeeze bottles is a great tip. Also thinking about things like crumbs in the toaster, um, deep yeah. fryers that, you know, would have cross-contamination there. Uh, just just extra stuff to think about. Being positive is super important. Kids with celiac disease often have a great attitude and deal very well with the fact, um, you know, that sometimes things are going to be a little bit different from the foods that other kids are having. And just keep that upbeat attitude. Um, you know, they're, they're going to learn that from their parents or caregivers. Uh, and so, yeah, work with that and, and make sure that in the process, they don't de- feel deprived of kind of those treats and, and special occasion type foods. Um, definitely engage kids in the process. Start those conversations early on. You don't want to overwhelm children, but at the same time, uh, you're not always going to be there. And so they have to have that curiosity about them that's going to keep them safe. Uh, if siblings are not gluten-free, acknowledge and appreciate the changes um, that they're having to make to keep the family yeah. safe, um, as we talked about earlier. And just most of all, let them know how proud you are with their progress. Uh, just like in school, you know, kids need, to, you know, a, a attaboy. They're they're going to need that type of uh, positive reinforcement when it comes to a gluten-free diet as well, especially if it's something new. Right. So, so let me just add real quick. So if you are a vegetarian... Just keep in mind, because you said fruits, vegetables, proteins, and dairy. Mm-hmm. Most all most of the animal proteins are going to be naturally gluten free, unless they're highly processed. You'll have to look at the label. But the majority of vegetarian and vegan proteins are not gluten free, so keep that in mind. Uh, I have found some good Gardein products that are gluten free and vegetarian, and I think again, more and more vegetarian companies are kind of jumping on the bandwagon and and realizing that. I'll, you know, the vegetarian craze is um, definitely becoming more popular and it's here to stay. And we have more gluten-free, you know, people uh, that are, you know, following gluten-free diets, whether they're celiac or not. 
So they are also starting to take wheat and gluten out of their products. So that's great news for people who are vegetarian or want to remain vegetarian while mm-hmm. on a gluten-free diet. So yeah, I mean, textured vegetable protein is gluten containing, correct? Yeah. Textured vegetable, isn't that textured vegetable? Isn't that, so, no, I don't think so. TVP, isn't that mm-hmm. just pure soy? I'm thinking, what am I thinking of that? What is the seitan? Seitan is pure gluten. Oh, it's Tofu so good. No wonder tempeh. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Just pure gluten on a plate. Um, I think textured vegetable protein is actually just soy. I don't, I really do have never even used that in anything. I know. What is that usually made to make like veggie burgers and like patties? Yeah. I mean, vegetarian, yeah. different vegetarian products. So I think it's just soy. They just add, they add so, or I'm sorry, they add wheat and barley to so many things. I mean, Will you Google it? Real quick while yeah, I continue. I will, to- I will okay. totally Google it. Yes. You Google we'll, it. We'll get back to you. <laughs> Gina, Gina's getting busy. All right. And I'm talking, <laughs> making it fun. So when we're talking kids, especially, uh, find, find a way to make it fun. So turn a trip it, to the grocery store mm-hmm. into a scavenger hunt. This is a great one. Um, and ask children, probably those who can read or close to reading, um, to find products that match uh, different images that you printed off on a, on a sheet of paper, kind of a, up on your cell phone. So just kind of looking for a certain product or hold up containers of similar products, like one gluten containing and one gluten free and ask your child to tell the difference. So kind of quizzing them along. Um, And I love this, this one too, start a home garden and talk about the Mm -hmm. role of different vitamins and minerals. So not always focusing on gluten talk. I mean, there's so much more to nutrition. Um, If you kind of spin the positive, it, it may just lead to less stressful um, times when you're trying to go gluten free. Um, so some baking tips, this is just kind of an add on, just something to kind of consider, uh, because baking probably is a bigger part of the gluten-free household. So keep, keep size, uh, when you're making something new, small, um, for two reasons, like batch size, small to limit waste in case it doesn't work. And when you're actually making it, uh, like let's say it's a muffin, you know, maybe consider trying a mini muffin just to limit crumbling. So often with gluten-free baked goods, they just don't hold together as well because they're missing that protein component. Um, And so just for a better end product, just keep things small. Um, If you're doing cookies, you know, keep them, you know, less than a two inch diameter, for example. Using blends of flowers, as we talked about, is probably the best option for texture. And I've heard wonderful, like just raves about Bob's Red Mill, um, all purpose, um, one for one. Agreed. Yeah. That stuff rocks. It's people just love it. And adding starch either in a one to one or a one to two ratio. I've probably seen it as a one to two, a little bit more often than a one to one. Um, but I think it's potato starch. Yeah. Potato, tapioca. Tapioca. um, Okay. Those are probably the ones that I've used most often. So you would add that what do you mean one to one or one to two ratio? Like so if you were doing, let's say, especially a heavier flour, like a coconut, something that absorbs a ton of water, like coconut or almond, you would okay. want to do like one part of that flour to one part of a starch. Something like oh, okay. a like a brown rice flour is a little less temperamental than some of the mm-hmm. others. And so you would probably do like a one to two, a one to three. And I'm just making that, it totally depends what else is going into the recipe. Like if it contains eggs, if it doesn't contain eggs, um, mm-hmm. it just really depends. Are there other leavening agents in the product? Like, you know, baking soda, baking powder, things like that. So it. just depends. But um, 
if you don't know what you're doing, follow a recipe because you'll start banging your head against the wall. All these gluten-free yeah. flours just do not react the way of all purpose. And so there is a huge learning curve there and know that going in and, and just kind of be ready for it. So I agree. Did you find okay. anything for us? So I did. It is actually just soy. So it is actually, it is gluten-free. Oh. So I'm going to give you an example of a wheat ingredient that might be found in something like a veggie breakfast patty for Morningstar. I'm trying to think. And again, I look at these ingredients all day long. I should have this memorized. But usually it's just like wheat starch or it might just say wheat protein. And of course, now I can't find the ingredients on the website. Uh, but I'm just telling you, it pops up in so many vegetarian and vegan items. I mean, it's very, mm -hmm. we have a solution station and it's supposed to be gluten-free and vegetarian. And half the vegetarian items that I look for or that I find um, in our system, we cannot put on this line because it also contains wheat. And of course, I'm looking at one right now that happens to be gluten-free. Anyway, but again, most companies, a lot of companies, especially ones like Morningstar and Gardein are working to, to basically change their product to make them now gluten-free and vegetarian or vegan, which is very helpful. Mm -hmm. So, all right. So moving along, we're going to go to our discussion point. So what are some utensils and cookware you should buy if just one or two people in the home have celiac disease? And again, I work, I really, I basically, my job is to train uh, food service staff to create gluten safe and allergen safe meals in our operations. So even though I don't have anyone with celiac disease in my house, uh, I do work with this on a daily basis. So if I were to have a son or daughter or child or husband or my or I myself was gluten-free, uh, the first thing I would do is make the decision as to whether or not we're going to be completely gluten-free. That would probably be, in some ways, the easiest thing to do is just don't even bring gluten into the house. However, knowing my husband, he would probably mm -hmm. never allow that to happen. And that's probably how a lot of people, you know, who are listening to our podcast are thinking, like, there's no way that's going to happen. So that's an option. But if that's not an option in your home, I would say the first thing to do is kind of take an inventory. Think about the utensils and equipment that you are using most often in your kitchen. So for me, it would be the toaster oven, nonstick skillets, large spoons and spatulas, cutting boards, and sponges. So I would start with those. I would get all new ones just for the person in our household who are, who's following a gluten-free diet. Then kind of as I go through life in the kitchen, week to week, I would kind of come up with maybe a larger list and then go from there. So I'd start with the most important things that I know I use on a daily basis. I would also say it's probably important to always keep plastic disposable utensils on hand just in case you don't have a clean utensil at a certain time and you don't want to wash it or you don't want to wash something or do dishes. Just grabbing a, you know, a plastic spoon or fork or large plastic utensils that you know are disposable and clean and safe um, for whoever it is who needs it. So keep in mind, uh, if you don't, so it's totally fine if you don't want to buy all new utensils or anything, but there are certain things that you have to buy new. A cutting board. It's very porous. You e it can easily, you know, get, you know, you cut on it. It makes scratches, which kind of makes a little hole or indention in the surface where gluten can get stuck. So you want to be sure to have a new cutting board. You want to be sure to have a separate toaster unless you use a toaster oven, in which case you could probably just put a nice piece of foil down um, to kind of have that barrier between the, where you put the regular bread and your gluten-free bread. So you could do that. It still wouldn't be 100% safe, but it would probably work depending on how often you use it. Also, if you're only using, 
you know, rubber or plastic spoons, I would definitely invest in something like stainless steel or sterling silver silverware or serving spoons because that's a lot easier to clean. Plastic um, and rubber spoons and spatulas, again, are, are easily kind of porous and wooden spoons. So not as safe for someone who um, you would be sharing equipment with who is gluten-free. Also keep in mind that the number one best way to get rid of any allergen, and really the only way to get rid of an allergen, including gluten, so a protein, is with hot soapy water. Not sanitizer, it's hot soapy water. Not just hot water, hot soapy water. And I go over this so many times with everyone I talk to in my training, that is the number one thing. If you don't sanitize, you know, the spoon or the surface, I don't even care. The, the best thing, the, the only thing that works to get rid of that allergen is hot, soapy water, period. So, so again, I think, uh, I think the most important thing to do is take an inventory, see what you use most, see what things you're willing to buy. Um, if you need and, and things that you think that you should buy because maybe you use them often or they're porous, um, keep a list as you go throughout the week. Um, you might not have to end up buying that much, but just keep in mind that if you're, if you are going to share things with that person in your household who has celiac disease, you do need to make sure that you're always washing with hot soapy water in between use. And like you said, making sure that you're buying things uh, like condiments in a squirt bottle or if, like peanut butter, you can't squirt that out. Just buying a separate one for that person who has celiac disease because you don't want to have to think about it every time you're making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for someone else, for example. Um, that's automatic cross-contact right there. So just have their own, you know, certain certain things should be their own, like peanut butter, for example, mm-hmm. or um, if you use the jarred jelly, which you probably shouldn't, the squeeze bottle would make more sense. Um, I'm trying to think of other examples of of things like that. Mayonnaise, mm-hmm. th- that comes in a squeeze bottle too, I guess. Um, peanut butter is really the only one that can stick out, sticks out in my mind in a household with kids at least. So yeah, so it's yeah, a lot to think about. Hot soapy water. Oh, yes. I learned but, something but new. But sponges, I think, yeah, hot soapy water and sponges, you've got, that's another one. You've got to make sure that you have a new sponge because you can't use the same sponge. Talk about porous. I mean, you clean something in uh, in water that has wheat in it. It gets stuck in that, um, uh, the, that sponge. You use that sponge with hot soapy water on a plate that you're trying to clean for someone who has celiac disease. You can use all the hot soapy water possible, but if there's wheat stuck in that sponge, you're just continuing to rub it on that plate. So mm-hmm. make sure that that person has their own set of sponges or even disposable disposable rags would be another thing. But I always say sponges are best because they're a little bit more environmentally friendly. Gina, I really have this hatred for sponges. They <sighs> totally gross me out. So I'm not, okay, when I say sponge, we buy the ones, they're not like a, a sponge you would use in a bathroom. They're like a kitchen sponge that aren't the same as what we used growing up. They have like almost like a mesh covering. They, they're the same material as our microphone um, covers. And then they have a mesh covering over it. But it's I not like I wish you like could see my nasty. face. Like I look disgusted. <laughs> so what do you guys use? The dishwasher. Okay, well, we use the dishwasher. But, but every once in a while, you don't use the dishwasher. Do you literally throw everything in the dishwasher? Yeah. Okay. What if you have? <laughs> okay. Except my like, except, um, what is it called? Um, oh my gosh, it's a skillet, cast iron. Okay. Yes. Or my my look my look or say I don't put in. But other than that, like knives, mm-hmm. I'm like, eh, buy one. I'll buy new so ones. So how in do years. you how do you clean your like or say? 
With your hands? With a sponge, but I don't like okay, it. Okay, there you go. But I'll use it. I'll use it like once, maybe twice, because that's how rarely I use it. And then I throw it away. Okay, so that's exactly my point, though. You're, there's going to be times when you're going to need a sponge, and you can't use the same sponge with someone who has celiac disease than, than someone who doesn't, as someone who doesn't. So you've got to have that extra sponge there. Even if you rarely use it, make sure that you always have an, a clean one. And store it away never. from the gluten one. Exactly. Store it away, have it labeled, put it in a little box. Yes, make sure no one ever uses it for anything other than non-gluten-containing ingredients. Yes, period. Trust Ooh. me, I have a hatred for sponge too. And, and Nick is obsessed with making sure that he puts our sponge. We, we pretty much get rid of our sponges after like two weeks of use um, or run it through the dishwasher. Uh, and that's another thing. If you can run everything through the dishwasher, you don't have to, you know, clean things by hand to make it safe for that person in your household with celiac. Put it in the dishwasher. Yeah. That's sanitized and clean, done. And lazy, um, love it. Yes, I know. I love it too. We throw everything in the dishwasher too. I'm the exact same way, for sure. I'm so guilty okay. of that. So I'm going to jump down to what's your favorite gluten-free grain? Yeah. So I was thinking about this when you were talking. So I said this before. I said this earlier on the podcast. I really have no experience. My experience when it comes to baking gluten-free goods, it consists of this. Finding a delicious sounding quick bread or muffin or bar recipe and simply removing the wheat flour or the all-purpose flour from the recipe and replacing it with one of three flours. Um, oat flour, brown rice flour, or just regular white rice flour. And I have been doing that for probably six years now, mainly because of the, the FODMAPs that are found in wheat, not because I'm gluten-free, because again, FODMAPs have to do with sugar, not wheat, or not the protein. It's the sugar found in wheat. So I try to avoid it. So I use those gluten-free grains. I have not once had a problem with it. Every single time my products have come out perfect. Now, I do have to sometimes cook them a little bit longer. So I'd say maybe, especially if I'm making cookies, I'll maybe put them in the oven for maybe four to six minutes longer. Not always, but sometimes. But having to deal with all the adding starch or looking at ratios, I don't want to even mess with that. Unless like what you said, there was a good recipe, but Oat flour, rice flour, not too expensive. Yeah. Pretty tasty, not a, and also healthy. I mean, it's a whole grain. Mm -hmm. So I take out the all-purpose flour and replace it with oat flour. And all of a sudden my product is a little bit healthier because it's a whole grain. Yeah. So those are my favorites. Yeah. I took that question, which I didn't write my answer to. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Gina. Queen. We know your favorite. It's almond Queen. flour. Well, I was actually, I took that question a little bit differently. So my favorite gluten-free grain, I would say, is brown rice. Oh. oh I wasn't okay. necessarily thinking baking. I was just thinking like like quinoa or brown mm -hmm. rice or oats okay. or, I don't know. Okay. Do you want to change so, your answer? I, I mean, I guess I don't. I do low carb. So, and when I say low carb, like I'm not like a keto person. I, I you know I aim for, I have about 150 to 100 carbs a day. So honestly, when it comes to, I get most of my carbs from fruits, vegetables, quinoa, I would say is my, is my grain of choice when it comes to gluten-free grains mm -hmm. uh, and also baked goods with one of those things. Like I usually have a little muffin or on a daily or a little bar or a snack bar that has about 20 to 30 grams of carbs in it. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes when I go to, to restaurants and or operations where I work, I'll make a salad and top it with either red or white quinoa. So that mm -hmm. would definitely be my number one. I'm not a big rice fan 
and lots of in sushi. And that's really it. So quinoa for sure. Yep. I do like quinoa too. Um, but there's lots of naturally gluten-free things out there. So, and a lot of times that's just cheaper and easier than trying to navigate food labels and find out all what's gluten-free and what's not. Cause all the season stuff often has gluten in it. So, all right. So kind of running through your kids' diets, um, as they stand today, what would you need to change to make them gluten-free? Oh my gosh. I was going, I was thinking about this. So starting off in the morning where my kids typically eat frozen waffles, Although I would say the last six months, it's been a consistent pancake, like homemade pancake in the morning breakfast, uh, where we would just we would just use, again, brown rice flour, oat flour. And actually, we've made their pancakes with oat flour before, and they loved them. So I don't know why we don't do that every time. So that would be an easy switch. They eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches often, so we'd switch to a probably a local. We have a really good bakery here, which I put a link to in our show notes. If you are in the Columbus area, it's called Ebon's. They have probably the best... Uh, gluten-free bread I've ever tasted. So I would just go buy that, make their peanut butter and jelly sandwiches with that. Pizza nights would be would be difficult. But again, I have a pizza recipe on my blog that is gluten-free, made with oat flour, which is, I think, delicious. Pasta nights would be different because currently they just use like the long spaghetti regular pasta, but they've also had the Barilla gluten-free pasta and loved it. So no big deal. Uh, we'd always have to buy, I usually buy the off-brand of Cheerios, like the Walmart or the Giant Eagle brand, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't believe is certified gluten-free. So we just have to switch to the actual Cheerios brand, which is a little bit more expensive, um, but no big deal. I say that. I wouldn't like it, but, you know, it wouldn't mm-hmm. be the worst thing. Tortillas, they eat often, so we have to make sure we do that. And then when we make grilled cheese or, uh, well, yeah, grilled cheese, obviously just use that Ebon's bread. And that's just, this is just a short list. I mean, Really, the toughest thing would be when we eat out. That's where I think it would be the most difficult for us. Yeah. Yeah. And for anyone, really. I think that's that's the scariest part of, of having celiac, which is where my job is important because students come to college and what do they do? They start eating out for every single meal for their entire day, for yeah. every day of the week and of the month and of the year. So mm-hmm. it can be a little bit scary. Yeah. What about you? Um, I was just thinking like how many people you probably deal with that have some type of a food allergy and it's blowing my mind. Yeah. Um, um <laughs> my kids have really been on a cereal kick in the morning, like dry cereal that I mix with nuts and like one of those little grabby on the go things that I don't know the name for that we've already talked about. Oh um, yeah. <laughs> with the lid. You <laughs> yeah. can put your hand in. <laughs> the one way valve for food for like little kid hands. Um, don't know what those <laughs> things are called. Um, br- they're brilliant, but um, so we they just have really. to do like a gluten-free cereal, which no biggie. Um, their lunch almost every single day, or if we do like banana sushi in the morning, which just like you said, a gluten-free tortilla, their lunch every day is a sun butter and jelly sandwich on usually a sandwich thin. Um, so we'd have to go to a gluten-free bread and I'd probably just buy it. Um, and they are more expensive. So maybe I would eventually mm-hmm. consider making it. Um, and then mm-hmm. nighttime, I think that really depends, but we would probably do, I mean, definitely switching to gluten-free pasta. Um, but I, I totally agree with you. I think that eating out different events, um, mm-hmm. parties at school, that type of thing would be probably the most challenging to work through. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, this is definitely not easy. Um, and, you know, we didn't even talk about like food labels and what to look for to ensure it's Mm -hmm. gluten-free and all that. But we did put all of that in our show notes. So we kind of jumped in today um, with, with kind of two feet. And so if you, if you kind of need to go back to square one, like 
what what different you know food additives are gluten containing. We've got all of that in the show notes. So please uh, just check those out. And yeah, so let's go. Yeah. Do you want to do mom wins? Sure. Yeah. And I just want to say one more time, I, I highly recommend Shelly Case's book that is called Gluten-Free, The Definitive Resource Guide, which I did put the link for in our show notes, but it's a it's a great read. It's just a great resource to have on hand if you if you are newly diagnosed or someone in your family is. So favorite favorite new food products or recipes or mom wins. All I really have to say here is that even though Cameron has all of a sudden become a terrible two child, there is something new new that he is also doing, which is great, and it's called eating. <laughs> <laughs> He actually comes home from school lately, school, I mean, his babysitter, and he's actually been eating and trying new foods. And I think I'm just really proud of myself for being patient and knowing that this day would come. I'm not saying it's perfect. He still nibbles and eats like a bird. But I mean, he is starting to taste more things and explore new items on his plate and not just stare at it and then get down and walk away. I mean, he's actually having meals with us, using his fork, trying new foods, shoveling broccoli in his mouth. Like I knew this, I knew it would come. I just kept telling myself not to badger him, not to give myself anxiety about how little he eats and that he would eventually turn a corner. And my patience and my persistence has finally, you know, kind of pulled through here and he's, he's doing well. That's so awesome. We'll see. We'll see how long it, it lasts. And you know, I'm not I'm not saying it's going to be perfect. It's still not great. He still barely eats anything, but it, he has turned a corner, and I am I'm excited about it. Well, I'm incredibly jealous of that report because Shay, <laughs> I, I it's like tears every night at dinner lately. Um, and she's just not willing to try anything. Actually, I made BLTs the other night. Oh, last night, the night before. I think it was two nights ago. Uh, yeah, that sounds right. And instead of using mayonnaise on the bread, I used uh, guacamole, homemade guacamole. And man, they mm-hmm. were so good. And so Piper promptly picked her tomato off and said, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. But she continued to pound the sandwich and Shay would not even try it. And um, just ended up in tears and she was sent to her room and I try and keep dinner as peaceful as possible. So if yes. she's going to have a, a little meltdown, she she's asked to go to her room to have some quiet time and then she's invited yep. back down um, and she wouldn't even try it. And it was so funny because Piper was sitting there just pounding down this BLT and she's like, it's good, Shay, you should try it. I mean, the two and a half year olds <laughs> like sitting there like coaching her along. Um, I bet you get Easter candy if you eat dinner. <laughs> like, you know, it just... And the four and a half year old is ah, just like drama. Yeah, that just so, fuels her fire, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I'm just kind of over it. But I did try. We all have tried. Mm-hmm. Um, that's it. Are those the bars? The only. Yeah, the, the just fruit. Just that's fruit. It. That's it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I got, I think it's strawberry and apple. Mm-hmm. One of my favorites. I don't eat the bars regularly, but when I do, I love that one. I really love that they're 100 calories. Um, they have a really. That you chew them. I mean, they're not like down the hatch in one. I mean, there's right. you have to chew them a little bit, which makes yes. the hundred calories really seem to stretch. Um, right. But I, yeah, I, I love them, and they're in mm-hmm. my purse now in the diaper bag. Like that's my go-to if if they need something to just split that in half. If we're you know if I need to tie them over for one hour rather than ruining dinner, um, we've yes. really gone to those. And I, my dietitian 
heart loves those things and I feel good about giving them to them and it's not enough to spoil their appetite. So total exactly. mom win with those. So love it. We'll have, to I, put, we'll have to put a link to those in the show notes for sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad that, and I got them off Amazon. So that was really nice. Um, mm-hmm. And so on kind of that note, um, or do you want to do read, read a review? Yeah, I'm going to read the review. So okay. we received a review, like our first in like four weeks. I and I been. asked so nicely on our last podcast, just review us. <laughs> Seriously, you guys, what the heck? It's all right. It's We're all right. so they're, lovable. They're going to start coming. <laughs> they're just enjoying it so much that they don't even, they get off the podcast and they just completely forget because they're thinking about all that we had to say. So we got one from someone named Forever Nick. And I think this is really funny because it's NIC. It's another almost like Nicole. So now mm-hmm. I'm starting to think that you're doing all these. <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. It's just a popular. If that name, were I guess. possible, Gina, I might. No, I'm just kidding. I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. It, it wouldn't. It wouldn't feed my soul to uh, to have fake reviews. But right. Um, so so this is what forever Nick. I'm assuming is a Nicole. Says these ladies educate while putting a smile on my face. Great listen on my way to work. Oh, that was awesome. I haven't read that one yet. So yeah. so just as you as you're looking for our episodes, just keep scrolling a little bit and then hit five stars and then write something. And, and then we'll read and it. And just put your name or not. You can make up a name. No big deal. It can be anonymous. It could be Nicole. No problem. It can be Nicole. We can have a third <laughs> Nicole on here. <laughs> um, yeah. And so just a, a little bit of housekeeping. We're trying to make it easier for people to find us. We have successfully um, created a website. So it's not Yay. real pretty yet. But if you go to dietitiansdishpodcast.com, you will find us. And so there, if you're at work, you can play us from there. You don't even have to open your app. Um, You can play us right from the website. All of our show notes are there. We're going to make it pretty with some pictures. We got a web designer who's on it. So it'll be even prettier in a couple of weeks. But right now it has full functionality. And then we also are on Stitcher and Spotify. Awesome. Spotify? Coming. Right? Uh, Yeah, Spotify. I think you're the one who did it. Yeah, that makes sense. It would be Spotify. Yeah. Yeah, it sounded so many. it sounded so official when I said it. I was like, "Is that right?" Um, yeah, uh, awesome. I'm very excited about that. So, again, be sure to leave us a review. Very easy and very appreciated. Coming up May 20th, we will be dishing about eating disorders and our own personal history with eating disorders and disordered eating, and how that has affected the way we are raising our own children with regards to food and body image. Until then, everyone, be well. Yep, we'll see you soon. See you in a couple weeks. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening for the podcast. Bye-bye.